All right, hey porch folks, it is good to be back with you today. Um, not in my van, and we're going to get back into um, the book of Luke. So before we jump into the text, I want to um, just sort of recap, if you remember where we've been. So we are in Luke chapter 8 today, and we've been reading through Luke to find out um, and to um, answer the question, uh, who is Jesus? Who does Jesus really reveal himself to be in these Gospels, especially in this Gospel of Luke? And so we've been reading through and we're trying to look at this the way Luke would want us to look at it when he wrote the book. And the section we're in is a section where um, uh, Luke is portraying Jesus as having um, a vast amount of power. And in this section, if you remember, the, the big question here is, who is this man? Right? Who is this guy? People keep asking that question, and Luke now is answering that. So um, the first part of this section was we read how um, Jesus has power over nature, and we read the, the calming of the storm and um, the saving of the lives of his disciples. Um, we read that, well, normally I say last week, but now it was like a month and a half ago. So we read that a month and a half ago. Um, the next part we're going to read is that Jesus has power over the supernatural world, and then after that, um, we're going to do, uh, next week, we're going to start kind of the same text. We're going to read it twice from two different angles, where we're going to see Jesus's power over sickness and death. Um, uh, but we're actually going to do those kind of a couple weeks apart because Easter will be um, right there in the middle. So today, what we're going to talk about is Jesus's power over evil forces and the supernatural world. And again, we've talked about demonic forces and that sort of stuff before, but um, you know, we live in secular San Francisco, and anybody hearing us talk about this, their first gut reaction is going to be, you chumps really believe in that stuff? Like, um, I was just, I mean, this is not a coincidence, just today, I was browsing through Reddit this morning um, as part of my spiritual disciplines, just kidding, and um, I saw this, like, a tweet that I've seen a couple of times, and um, it was, I think it was like the Church of Satan was saying, we don't literally believe in Satan. And then somebody tweeted back, oh yeah, well who does then? And then the Church of Satan tweeted, Christians do. Kind of making fun of us that we believe in a literal, actual enemy. And even though they're making fun of us, it's true. This is, this is what we believe um, in, in this, this vast supernatural world. And um, we've already covered this a little bit in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus um, cast a demon out of that dude in the synagogue. Um, and we, we just sort of a quick recap of what we talked about, that there is evil in this world that can't be explained, right? There are uh, evil social systems. There are, there's evils like, um, uh, you know, morality failing, education failing. One big evil, though, that's right probably on the front of all of our minds today um, and this week is the evil of racism that we've been talking about all year, but specifically here in the Bay Area now, um, we are seeing these anti, uh, this anti-Asian uh, racism, and these attacks on elderly, um, elderly Asian folks, and it's really disgusting and it's really disturbing to see. Although I was pretty proud of the lady. I don't know if you guys saw the, um, the woman on Market Street who fought back and beat the tar out of the guy that tried to beat her up. Um, you know, I was pretty proud of her for defending herself. But the whole situation sucks, right? It's evil, and. Um, you know, we're a church with a lot of uh, Asian folks in it, and it breaks my heart that you guys have to walk around scared and, um, you know, thinking about this sort of stuff. Like, this is evil in our world. Um, and here's the thing. The Bible 
has this this nuanced view of evil and this realistic view of evil that there really is actual pure like evil out there that can't be explained any other way than to talk about the supernatural forces behind it. And so today we're going to get sort of a sneak peek at that world. Um, we're going to read um, this section here from Luke chapter 8. So let me grab my Bible. We're going to start here in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So if you remember, um, they were uh, in the storm and all of that stuff happened. And the, the storm almost sank all the boats that they were with, and then Jesus calmed the storm. So this is what happens afterwards, right? So after the calming of the storm, if you remember, we talked about the Sea of Galilee too, is a lake that's about the size of Lake Tahoe, right? It's a, it's a, they call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's basically a big giant lake. And now they reach the other side of the lake, and they get to this area called the Gerasenes. Now the Gerasenes was an area that was a predominantly Gentile area. And so one of the mistakes I think that a lot of preachers and people studying the Bible make is they read the New Testament and they read these gospel stories and they assume that this is a Jewish world. And I've, um, I was actually just watching, I watched, I just did a course on this too, which is why this is in the front of my mind, but on, um, sort of the, 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 what the New Testament world looked like, the history and the culture and all that stuff. And, um, I just did an online course. It was super fascinating going through a lot of the texts and stuff that aren't in the, the New Testament or the Old Testament. But anyway, um, the, the history was, um, the history here was, um, uh, not quite what we'd expect, right? When we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we got to remember these are two completely different worlds. And in the New Testament world, the Romans were in charge. And when the Romans were in charge, it meant a lot of people kind of lived on top of each other. And so it's true that this was an Israelite area, right? This was a Jewish area. Um, but there were a lot of Gentiles that lived in and around Israel, and there were whole sections and towns where they were not really Jewish areas. So we're going to read about some pigs in a minute, and everybody goes, oh, the pigs were owned by Jewish farmers, but they weren't owned by Jewish farmers because this was a Gentile area. And so Jesus now is leaving Israel where he's been doing, leaving these Jewish areas where he's been, he's still in Israel, but these Jewish areas, and he is now entering into a Gentile area. And then verse uh, 27. When Jesus stepped out on the land, there was a man met him from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Okay, so do you know how in uh, like those movies where um, there's a storm or, uh, you know, they're crossing... Yeah, I guess we'll say like a storm on the ocean or... Um, I think this happens in space movies too, and they finally get back to Earth, or they finally get to land, and the person runs out of the ship and on the beach is like kissing the sand, and they're so excited, and they're relieved to be back on the land. Well, that's what you would expect here after the last section, but that's not what happens, right? As soon as they step out onto the land, this man runs up. There's no time for that. And the man is described here by Luke as a man who had demons. Now, uh, we talked about this at length when we did that in Luke chapter 4, so we're not going to get back into that. But um, I like the, 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 to use the wording as much as we can that the Bible uses to describe things. And this is one of those areas. So, you know, because of movies like The Exorcist and was it Emily Rose something? Anyway, a lot of these demonic movies, uh, you know, about demon possession and that sort of stuff. I don't really like to use the word demon possession, although you'll probably at some point catch me saying that phrase. Um, and then you'll say, hey, I thought you said you didn't like that. Okay. 
Um, but anyway, the Bible uses different language to talk about demonic activity, right? It says here, this is a man who had a demon. I like the language to talk about demonic oppression versus um, pose, possession, right? Um, and the so this man is a man who had these demons oppressing him. Um, the description of him is like this. It says he has no clothes, so he's running around naked, which in our culture is just like, oh, yeah, so he lives in San Francisco and he, you know, I mean, we, where were we? We were standing in front of um, the ice cream store over, um, was it By Right Ice Cream, over by Dolores Park where we used to live. And there were a bunch of kids in line, and this guy just walked by completely butt naked in front of all these kids. Hey, kids. He waved at them like he wasn't a 65-year-old man with no clothes on, right? This is normal in San Francisco. This culture, not so much. This is not the way that they operated. And so anybody seeing, oh, he had no clothes, the first thing that they would think was, wow, he's completely lost his sense of shame from Adam and Eve, right? And the whole story of the fig leaves and all that stuff. And that's a big deal in an honor and shame culture. Um, the second thing is he has nowhere to live. He's homeless, right? So um, to the Jews, this would have been a sign to the Jewish folks. This would have been a sign that he has lost God's blessing because they... Uh, first century Judaism, they thought of wealth as blessing from God. There was a lot of that prosperity gospel kind of stuff, right? God loves the wealthy more. And Jesus is constantly pushing back against that narrative. Um, and then he lived in a graveyard. Now, the graveyard was a sign of death. And um, if you remember, we talked about clean and unclean laws and purity and impurity. And a lot of that stuff had to do with keeping yourself away from the things of death. So uh, blood, dead bodies, right? Like, um, so anybody in this culture reading this would have gone, wow, this is really bad for this guy, right? He, he's naked, he's homeless, he's, um, he's, un, he's ritually unclean, right? This is like the worst of the worst. And then verse 28, when Jesus saw it, when Jesus saw, he cried out and felt, oh, sorry, when he saw Jesus, he cried and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So now the, the, the demons that are oppressing this man and controlling this man, right? Uh, they're afraid of Jesus. Do you see that language there? I beg you, do not torment me. Um, I love the idea of the tough guy who thinks he's real tough, meeting somebody tougher than him, right? I, like, I, I've been, okay, so all of my sermon illustrations now are going to come from that TV show, The First 48. I don't know if you guys have seen the show, but I've been watching it a ton lately. I'm on the A&E app, and um, although they make me watch commercials, it's kind of annoying. But anyway, so I've been watching this show, and um, the, the premise of the show is it's kind of like Law & Order, except it's real. So uh, they follow real um, homicide police as they investigate murders. And the seasons, um, the seasons that I've been watching lately are... Um, uh, in Atlanta, Tulsa, and New Orleans. Anyway, so a lot of my sermon illustrations for the next few weeks, guys, is going to come from this TV show, The First 48. But anyway, uh, this is like when I'm watching The First 48, and there's a gang member who's kind of a tough guy, murderer, you know. Um, yeah, he's tough on the streets, and he kills some defenseless person. Um, like one I saw the other day, the guy walked in and shot up a barber shop full of people. And um, But then they get him in the... They get him in the witness chair or, you know, in that box where they're interrogating him. That's what it is, the interrogation room. And he's facing life in prison. And all of a sudden now these cops are a lot tougher than he is. And uh, all of a sudden he starts crying, please, no, don't send me to prison. And I'm like, I thought you were the tough guy. What happened to the tough guy? This is the demon that's uh, kind of inside this guy, right? This, this, these demons real tough until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, now all of a sudden these guys are terrified. 
And it says here, what have you to do with me? The NASB, which is another translation, says, what business do we have with each other? I like that. Like, what, what do you want from me, Jesus? These demons are asking. And then they, look what they call Jesus, though, this demon. Um, well, okay, I keep saying they, because we'll find that out in a second. But um, Jesus, the son of the most high God. Do you remember this from Luke uh, earlier? Just, you know, um, the story right before this. He said to them, where is your faith? This is verse 25 of chapter 8. Uh, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the water, that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Do you see that? Who, who, who is this guy? Luke keeps asking this question. And one of the ironies of this part of Luke is early on, the only folks that seem to know the answer to that question are the enemy. Right, these enemies, they seem to know who Jesus is. These evil spirits actually know who he is. Keep going in the story. Verse 29. For he had commanded, so they beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Right? So this is crazy. So Jesus now at this, you know, Luke's kind of telling this story. He says at this point, he'd already commanded the spirit to come out of the man as easily as um, we tell Alexa to do something, right? Jesus commands these, I'm seeing if my Alexa just went off. It did. Um, to see if Jesus, the way we talk to her and tell her to do something, or do something, or we tell Suri to do something, or whatever happens on an Android phone that I don't know. Um, that easily, Jesus commands the supernatural world. Right And actually easier because my Alexa and my Siri, they don't listen to me. They hate me and they don't understand my voice and they never know what I'm talking about. When Jesus commands the, the enemy here, automatically things happen and they know what to do and they do what he says. He has that authority and that power. Now, uh, Luke tells us how amazing this is because he gives us the backstory of this guy, right? This demon had, had really messed things up, right? It had seized him. It had, um, in certain times, this man had broken out of the chains that people had bound him with. Um, it, he probably terrified everyone in the neighborhood. Um, uh, like, like, I'll give you an example. I don't, I don't want to say this was a demonic possession, but, um, you know, somebody like this is really scary. Like, I was, um, you guys know, I ride motorcycles when my back doesn't hurt, which these days is never. Um, but anyway, one day I was riding my motorcycle. I went for a ride at nighttime, and... Uh, Melissa went to bed or something and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for a ride around the city in the middle of the night. I used to do that a lot. Not the smartest thing I ever did. But anyway, it was like three in the morning. I'm riding around San Francisco on the open streets. It's a lot of fun. And I was riding and I was at 16th street in Petrero, right in front of that McDonald's there. And I pulled up and there was a SUV in front of me. And there was this, um, this big guy on the corner who was clearly wigging out on some sort of drugs. And he had a golf club in his hand and he walks up and he starts pounding on the SUV uh, with the golf club. And the SUV driver's terrified. I look over at him. Uh, but th at least he has the car around him. I'm right next to the SUV. And I'm just, you know, I've got my leather jacket and my helmet. But this guy's swinging a golf club. This guy's going to take me apart. And so I took off and I ran the red light through Petrero, uh, through Petrero Street. All was at six lanes of Petrero. And I took off and I got out of there. Um, but I just remember that feeling. This is probably how a lot of the people around here felt, right? This guy, this big, strong guy, he's tearing through chains. He's hitting people with golf clubs. Um, and 
um, he's he's been terrorizing this area, or the demon within him has been terrorizing the area. And so Jesus asks him, right, um, you know, let me find it. Uh, Jesus asks him in verse 30, what's your name? Now, okay, so in this culture, the idea of knowing somebody's name, a lot of people were sort of superstitious and thought that meant you had power over that person. And so do you see what's happening here? Anybody reading this story would automatically think, uh-oh, thing, this is not looking good for Jesus, right? Because the demon knows him and knows he's the son of the most high God and all this stuff knows his name and Jesus doesn't know his name. Of course, Jesus knows what's going on. He's doing this for everybody else's benefit. But um, automatically people reading this would have been like, uh-oh, um, is Jesus about to lose this battle? And then it gets even worse. The demon answers, my name is Legion, right? Which is is a unit of Roman soldiers that, depending who you ask, goes from somewhere between a thousand and depending who you ask in what time period and what part of the Roman world, right? Things weren't quite set in stone, but it goes between a thousand and five thousand. It's just a way to say like a ton of people. Um, and the exact number is not that important. More important is um, the demon was saying, we're, we have a lot of power, right? So Jesus asks him, what's your name? And he says, we have a lot of power, right? We're, we're this legion of demons. And people reading this would have thought, there's something off here, right? Because they know Jesus's name. He doesn't know their name. They seem to have the upper hand in this situation. But at the same time, they seem to be terrified of Jesus. Look at verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, they begged him. It's almost pathetic. Remember, they know who Jesus really is, right? Jesus is the creator. He's the son of God. He is, um, think of Jesus like from my favorite two chapters in the Bible, right? Revelation 4 and 5, right? He's the powerful um, king sitting on the throne in, in the throne room of God. And so they're asking him, don't send us to the abyss. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over trying to figure out what this means exactly. What is the abyss? I don't, I'm going to say let's not fill in the details. The truth is we want to know more about the supernatural world than the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us there is a supernatural world. And then the other thing that the Bible does is it tells us there's a war going on in the supernatural world, right, between God and between the enemies of God. But what the Bible doesn't do is fill in the details. And that course that I just took on a lot of the sort of New Testament Jewish writings that weren't part of the Bible or weren't part of the Old Testament canon or the New Testament canon, and um, the pseudo, what is it called? Pseudopigrapha? Is that right? I don't think I'm saying that right. Um, and the Apocrypha and this. A lot of what those writings were were filling in details on the, de on the like, what's going on in this supernatural world. And a lot of it is really kind of out there. And we don't want to do that. The truth is, we want to know more than we do. But the Bible sort of gives us glimpses. It's like um, uh, when I was a kid, my parents would ground me and tell me, you can't watch TV. And so they would shut the door to the living room. But the way it worked was we had one of those really old houses. Uh, we lived in a house that was built in the 1800s when I was growing up. In late 1800s, but 1800s. I had these old doorknobs and had these keyholes that you could see through the keyhole. And what I would do is I would just stand in the hallway and I would watch TV through the keyhole. The problem is I can only see like a little bit of the corner of the TV. So the whole family was watching TV and I was an awful kid. And so I was grounded a lot. Um, I was a pretty disrespectful little runt, you know. And um, I spent a lot of time peeking through that keyhole trying to watch the TV. And the problem is that's sort of the Bible, uh, how much information we have about this vast supernatural world. We're just watching it through a keyhole. And so what is the abyss? There's a few different options with some stuff in Revelation. And um, is there a holding place like a jail for demons and some stuff where they're going to end up at the... Uh, I'm just going to say 
what they're begging is not really that important. We know whatever it is, they don't want to go there. And Jesus clearly has the authority and the power to send them there. Okay. So um, you can Google some of this stuff about the abyss. I'm not going to I'm not going to waste all of our time getting into all of that stuff. All right, verse 32. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged uh, they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake and drowned. Well, that's crazy, right? Now, immediately when we read this, again, our modern sensibilities pop up, and we're thinking, wow, this Jesus is pretty horrible. Right, like who's one of the worst people from the last fifteen years or whatever in American culture? Right, what was one of the biggest scandals? Was the Michael Vick scandal? If you don't know that, he was a football player who sort of oversaw. I don't remember the exact details, but it had something to do with a dog fighting ring, and um, you know, I mean, it was bad. And he sort of repented and said he was wrong, and um, kind of came back and played a couple more years of football. But in our culture, right, animal cruelty is. Uh, is almost worse, right? We, we were worse to Michael Vick than we were to Ray Lewis, who was a football player who actually killed somebody, right? So Ray Lewis killed somebody. Nobody cares. He's in Doritos commercials. Michael Vick killed a bunch of dogs. He's the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, again, I saw a Reddit thread the other day um, calling out pro-life people um, who also eat meat. They were saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You eat meat and you're pro-life. And I'm like, you really don't see the difference between a pig and a person, right? But anyway, in our modern sensibilities, we are much more pro-animal rights than anybody was in the ancient world. Nobody in the ancient world would have read this and thought, oh, those poor pigs. They would have read this and thought, those poor farmers, they lost all the income from those pigs. Um, but anyway, the assumption, the biblical assumption is never that animal life is equal to human life. It goes human life, animal life. Not that we're supposed to be mean to animals or we're supposed to be cruel to animals, um, but animals are part of God's creation, that he's given us and we should steward them well, right? And I know, you know, I mean, uh, we love our animals and Melissa loves her cat. Uh, me, I'm going to be honest, not so much, but people love their pet, you know, that sort of thing. So anyway, um, I don't want us to get tripped up on the idea that these pigs died, though. I want to talk about what's really going on here. So why did Jesus give these demons permission to enter these pigs? Well, it doesn't say. Um, but I think there is one really good guess, and let me give that to you. So Jesus heals the man of the demonic oppression, and um, in that process, the pigs die. Now, in a second, we're going to read about the people who owned these pigs and the townspeople. And they're going to be angry about the pigs, and they're not going to care at all that the man was healed, right? That this guy was healed, that he was freed from this oppression. It, they value their money. They don't value the pigs' lives. They value the money that those pigs would have brought more than they value human life. And so, Maybe Jesus was doing this to teach them a lesson about what I was just talking about, the value of human life over the value of, of um, not animal life, but over the value of sort of economic life, right? Money is not as important as people. Um, so I don't know. That's a, that's a guess why Jesus did this. I think that's a pretty good guess. Um, but again, he, I think he's also, <clears throat> maybe another reason is he's giving us a little bit of a wider picture of the keyhole looking into the supernatural world, right? It shows us the evil of these demons. One of my favorite books um, dealing with sort of the keyhole peek at the supernatural world is um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, where um, one demon was teaching a younger demon like how to mess with people. And it's a really interesting book, and a lot of it is exactly what I said we shouldn't do, which is sort of make things up about the supernatural world. Um, but he's not writing it like it's scripture. Or, you know, he's not teaching it like it's scripture. But it's a super interesting book. 
And in that book, what Lewis tries to get across is just how wicked and evil these, these, these demonic forces are, and that their main goal is to mess with you, right? Is to, um, to mess with God's people and to keep, they hate humanity, we'll say. So let's talk about an evil, like a person for a second. Like, I want to give you an illustration. There's a guy, oh man, I forgot to look up how to pronounce his name, so I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, Joseph uh, Mengel, I think is how you say it. Um, he was a Nazi doctor at the Auschwitz concentration camp. Now, this guy was sick. He did a lot of really messed up stuff. Sick experiments on people um, at Auschwitz, the prisoners at Auschwitz. And um, he did amputations with no anesthesia to see how long before people pass out. Um, he was trying to push the human body to the limits, right? He tortured twins. Like, he'd torture one twin and use the other one like a control group. Um, he'd... I think this whole documentary that I've never seen about the twins of Auschwitz, um, he'd give people diseases on purpose to kill them, stuff like that, before the gas chambers. Um, you would be hard-pressed to go through human history and find somebody that's more uh, evil than Mangle. Now, what makes him so evil was um, his just complete disregard for the value of human life to push towards his, his own purposes in horrific, horrific ways, if you know anything about this guy. And here's the thing. Basically, what Mangle did to human bodies is what the enemy wants to do to human souls, right? These demonic forces are all about just using people for their purposes of trying to get under God's skin, right? They're not trying to make sure that people just have a good time and God's sort of a killjoy and these guys are the ways to actually have fun. They want to destroy our souls the way that Mangle destroyed bodies. And here's the thing. By Jesus... Letting these pigs fly off the cliff and fall into the, the water and drown and die, you get sort of a glimpse at the evil of these demonic forces, at the destructive power of these demonic forces and what they're really, really after. All right, keep going. Verse 34. So that's kind of probably another reason why Jesus let this happen. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then the people went outside to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man um, had been healed. So now the news, it spreads back into the town, and people, it says there at the last verse, how he had been, they, they start to tell everybody how he had been healed. And the Greek word there is sozo, which um, is sort of a almost a, a word with two meanings. It could either mean healed, right? Like you're healed from a disease, or it's the same word we use for saved. It could mean that you were saved from the power of sin. And it's clear here that in this case, um, it's both. And so imagine this guy's life for a minute, right? He is a um, demonic oppressed guy who has been ostracized from community, and he's been, he's been um, living in the tombs, and he's had no clothes and no house, and people have tried to arrest him and, and bind him up with chains. He breaks out of the chain. Like, his mind has been ravaged by the oppression of this evil, um, this evil legion of demons. And then Jesus comes along and sends the demons away. And all of a sudden, he gets his mind back, and he is freed from the power and um, people run back and tell the story in the town. And by the time they come back now, this guy's probably been hanging out with Jesus for a couple of hours. And I'm guessing that Jesus has been sitting there and having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this guy, teaching him a lot of the stuff about the Sermon on the Mountain, salvation, 
um, and the upside down kingdom and what he's here to do. And this guy uh, is clearly loving all of this. The problem is everybody else isn't. The people in the town, they're not happy about the wonderful thing that's just happened to this man, right? This guy that lives in their neighborhood and, uh, you know, torments them. And they're not happy that he's been freed from this power. They're upset about the pigs. Look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and he returned. Now they're seized with fear. This happens a lot though too when Jesus' sort of divinity shines through his humanity. And this is the same response after the calming of the sea, right? In verse 25, everybody now is seized with fear. And so what do they do? Right? They say, get out of here. Right? They tell Jesus to leave. They don't run to him as a savior. They push him away and they tell him to go. And so what does Jesus do? He packs up and he leaves. He gets back in the boat and he turns around. Now, some commentators, as you read through certain commentaries and Bible study Bibles and that sort of stuff, will have comments like this. Jesus will never go where he's not wanted. And if you want Jesus to leave, he's going to leave. And, the, and they make this sort of a spiritual, uh, a spiritual lesson. Just like Jesus left these people, if you don't want him in your heart, he's going to leave. Now, here's the problem is, I think that's a misunderstanding. Um, because... Going where he's not wanted is exactly what Jesus does, right? That's the gospel, is he comes into sinful and rebellious hearts and he fixes them so that they will want him, so that they will love him. So, um, I don't know, I, don't, I just don't like that, uh, the way that people phrase that. So, why does Jesus leave then, right? Um, what, did, what does he do? He takes off, he goes back to the other side. Well, because they don't want him there, but his his uh, his time here was done, right? His ministry was done. He had ministry to do elsewhere. Um, I don't want to like over-spiritualize the whole thing. They told him to beat it, and he said, okay, so he left. Um, but as you'll see in a minute, Jesus, he doesn't leave these people, which this next verse kind of blows up that whole other interpretation here. Um, he doesn't leave these people with no hope, right? He leaves them with a ministry, um, with a missionary. Look at verse uh, 38 and 39, the end of the text. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, the man now is, um, has been saved. He'd been healed, sozoed. Um, and he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to join the team. Remember, there was the 12 disciples, but there were a bunch of boats that crossed the lake. So there's probably a couple of dozen people here hanging out with Jesus, part of his ministry team. Um, my guess is most of those women that we read about earlier that are supporting the ministry, they're there too. They're all hanging out, this big group of people. And this guy says, I want to be part of the group. And Jesus, um, he says, I want to go with you. I want to be around you. I, I need you, Jesus. Is, uh, you know, you can almost feel the earnestness in his voice. This is the man who has freed me. I've got to know more. But what does Jesus say? Right? He says, no, go back and tell everybody what God has done for you. Now, do you remember the parable of the soils where the, the farmer throws the seed and it lands in different soil? And sometimes it grows and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, we talked all about that. And what we said was that in that parable, Jesus is the farmer spreading the word of God. The seed is the word of God. And Jesus is the farmer spreading that seed. But what we also said sort of at the end there was that Going forward, Jesus would deputize his people, his followers, to join him in that task. This guy, this demonic, oppressed, naked, homeless man living in a cemetery, is the first person that sort of is publicly deputized like this by Jesus in the book of Luke to go and take the gospel. 
Right? This is an example of Jesus doing just that. He says, go and tell, and I love this too, go and tell everybody what God has done for you. And then, but you see what Luke says? He says, um, and then, G, you know, the guy went out and he told everybody what Jesus had done for him. See how interchangeable uh, Luke uses the word God and uses the word Jesus, right? He uses those two interchangeably. Luke is telling us, he's answering the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Well, he calms the storm. He's the power over creation. He, he has the power over, so nature, he has a power over the supernatural world as well. He's, he's painting this picture that Jesus is God. Now, what do we do with this text? Let me put my Bible down. What do we do with this text here? Right? It's so easy for us to read something like this and then to say, well, that guy was completely controlled by the demons, right? This was like an exorcist moment, head spinning around and vomiting. I've never actually seen that movie, but vomiting green, whatever, all over the place. Uh, what does that have to do with me, right? I'm not like that. I'm not living in the tombs, right? I'm not, uh, you know, naked and lonely and, uh, you know, oppressed by these demons. Well, remember, I said before, I don't like the word possessed. Not that I hate it. or I, I, Not my favorite word. I think the more nuanced word is to talk about how demons oppress people. Because the word possessed implies two things. It makes, well, it, it does two things. It makes people afraid. You know, am I just going to be walking down the street one day and then a demon's going to possess me? And, uh, you know, I grew up in that evangelical world that read those books like This Present Darkness. And I grew up just terrified of the idea of demons are everywhere. And I heard stories and this sort of stuff. But then the second thing is it also makes, at the same time, it scares folks, but at the, uh, the other side is it makes it seem just completely unrelatable, right? I'm not like this. I'm not, my head's not spinning and whatever. Um, this guy had demonic influence in his life on a massive level, but evil forces, these evil demonic forces influence people, influence our world on a lot of levels, right? Not always a legion of demons. So just because somebody doesn't have this legion of demons doesn't mean they're living a life without the influence of uh, the enemy upon them, right? The the sin that humanity committed in the garden opened up our entire race and our entire universe to this influence. There is an uh, um, emptiness within us that the enemy and his, you know, buddies are willing to completely exploit for their own purposes, right? They're treating our souls the way that that Nazi doctor treated those folks in Auschwitz, right? It's just, it's wicked. It is evil. And it's not always to this extent, um, but it happens, right? Think of just examples from everybody's lives, right? We have folks who are more angry than they would like to be. And they think, why am I always so angry? We have folks who are selfish and proud. We have folks struggle with pornography. Um, There's just so many different ways that the enemy influences us. Jealousy, all this stuff, right? All of humanity can relate on some level to this, this guy oppressed by God's enemies. Maybe not to the extent, but it happens. The Bible talks about how, in Romans 6, talks about how we are slaves to sin, right? We are bound to sin, right? Um, we, we, we are controlled by it. And here's the kicker that the sin in our lives has messed us up so bad that we love it even as it is killing our souls, right? It, it ruins our lives um, and uh, it, it doesn't live up to its promises and yet we keep going back. Um, it's like folks in, um, again, back to the first 48, it's like people in abusive relationships. I was watching an episode where this 
um, you know, there, there were these two folks and one of them was abusing the other one. And this person kept defending and, and, and going back to that other person until eventually the abuser, um, it was a woman and a man, eventually the abuser killed the woman. It, but she kept, it was a sickness. She kept going back to the abuse. And that's what we do with sin, right? We keep going back. Um, you know, sorry, I have some iPad or something in my room that keeps going off. Just ignore that. Um, you know, in um, psychology, they call it Stockholm Syndrome, where you fall in love with your uh, kidnapper. Or you, maybe not fall in love, but you sympathize with your kidnapper, right? It's sick. And we sort of have a Stockholm Syndrome with sin. We, we know that it's bad intellectually and we hate it and then at the same time we love it so much give me more of this sin and so do you see what a terrible state humanity is in we are we are chained to the thing that is dragging us down and it's controlled by these evil and demonic forces so what do we do how do we get how do we get out of this how do how are we freed from this well here's the deal we need to be controlled by a spirit just not one of these ones Right? We need The problem is um, that we are under the influence of the wrong spirits. We don't need the enemy to be guiding us and have his thumb down on us. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. This legion of evil and demonic spirits um, wanted to control and destroy this guy, just like they did with the pigs. That was like the sort of living example of what they wanted to do to this guy. They brought death to these pigs the way that they were trying to bring death to this man's soul. But the Holy Spirit, what he does is he indwells God's people and he does the opposite. These spirits bring death. The Holy Spirit brings life. But again, here's the problem. Our sin has darkened our minds. We don't want the Holy Spirit. We want our sin. We cling to it. We love it. So how do we go from slaves to sin to slaves to God? How do we go from, from evil spirits to the Holy Spirit? How do we do that? We can't. And that's the gospel. We can't get from here to here. We need a hero to pick us up and carry us. We need somebody powerful enough to defeat the world of evil. We need someone with clear control over the supernatural world. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage with Jesus. He defeats evil. He clearly has this power over evil. And he um, ultimately defeats evil when he dies and rises again. Right? We're getting... Uh, we're getting close to Easter, and um, where we where we celebrate this, right? But a couple of days before Easter, right? We'll talk about this during Easter week. But on that Friday, the enemy probably thought he had won. I just killed the hero. But then Sunday morning came, and Jesus burst out of the grave with this new resurrected life. And the ultimate sort of stepping on the head of the snake, he defeated the enemy. They are terrified of him now. And because of that, we... His people, we don't have to be scared of them because our champion, our hero, has already defeated them on our behalf. If you remember when we were doing the core team and we read 1 John, in chapter 4 there's this verse, Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist, this evil spirit. You have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When Jesus frees you from the, bond, the, the bonds of sin and puts the Holy Spirit inside of you now, all of a sudden the power within you is greater than the influence of the power, the external power of these evil spirits. Do you see that wording there? You have overcome them because the Spirit is inside you. It's almost like you won the battle because Jesus did it on your behalf. You now have defeated the power of sin and death. 
and, and the, the Spirit moves into our lives and he starts to clean house and he starts to clean the carpets and get rid of the stink of sin from us and he gives us a new life. And now we are ruled by a good and a perfect king and his Spirit lives within, within us. And that's a game changer. Right? You have overcome the evil one because the Spirit that's in you is greater than the Spirit that's in the world. So let me end with this. Let me read here. Let me flip over. I didn't get to this yet. In Romans um, chapter 8. This is how I want to end the sermon. Just with these encouraging words from the Apostle Paul. As he's talking about um, the power of these demonic evil spirits. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, right? Our hero has defeated the enemy, and now we have nothing to be afraid of. All right, let's thank him and pray for that now. You know, let's, let's worship him. God, we thank you that that is true, that you have defeated the enemy, and that we are in your army, we are on your team, and we get credit for that victory. You know, Lord, we're sinners, and we fall, and we we make mistakes, and we keep running back to um, our, our old love. We keep running back to sin, thinking that for some reason it will fulfill us, while neglecting the spirit within us and where ultimate happiness lies. And I just thank you that your, um, your death and um, the price that you paid uh, covers even that sin, Lord. I pray, Lord, that for our, our, our church, and um, I thank you for just the the vision sermon last week and the discussions we've been having. And I pray going forward that, um, that you would keep the enemy far away from all of us and that we would not experience um, the, the, the effects of spiritual warfare. Um, I pray that every time the enemy gets near us, that you would uh, curb stomp him and, and just keep him away so that we can continue on with the work of your kingdom so that we can be representatives for you in San Francisco. We can be a light in the darkness. So we just thank you that you've given us so many things that we don't deserve, that you have, um, that you didn't um, leave when we pushed you away with our, our fallen and sinful hearts, but that you broke in and you fixed our hearts. We don't deserve anything that you've given us. You are so amazing. We love you so much. Amen.